From funding for domestic chip manufacturing making its way through the U.S. government right now, to China's subsidization of industries it views as strategic, industrial policy is a pretty important aspect of understanding today's intersection of business and government. But just how much do countries spend on industrial policy? As it turns out, although a lot of research has been done on the efficacy of industrial policy, less ink has been spilled about the question of the size of that spending. So, to shed some light on the sheer scale of industrial policy spending in China and in other countries, we chat with the authors of a new report on the topic from CSIS. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this is the China Business Review Podcast. All right, for starters, before we dive into your report, let us go ahead and have you guys introduce yourselves. I'm Ilaria Mazzocco. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at CSIS, where I focus on uh, industrial policy, Chinese uh, economic issues, and really my area of uh, passion and expertise is uh, decarbonization, climate change, and especially climate tech. I'm Gerard Pippo. I'm a senior fellow at the CSIS Economics Program, where I focus on a little bit of everything, mostly stuff related to China. Perfect. So to set the table here, your report is on the size of industrial policy spending in China and in other countries. So what is your definition of industrial policy spending? Um, that's a very good question because that's one of the first questions we had to tackle, right? Um, there's actually no um, agreed upon definition of industrial policy. So different academics, uh, policymakers have defined it differently. And uh, that's one of the things we actually had to address. So the way, the way we, uh, we actually have a, a, you know, a set definition, which I can read out, but essentially what we were interested in was um, targeted vertical interventions by the state to um, reallocate resources towards specific firms or sectors um, in, uh, in ways that not only target growth, but also uh, we try to include other policy objectives. For example, there may be a sort of, you know, Failing firms are not very efficient, but they may have they may be serving other kinds of objectives. For example, employment, or maybe it's considered a strategic industry, etc. And so the state may be trying to help that firm or that uh, sector. Um, so there's there's various uh, definitions out there. There's very broad ones that kind of cover all kinds of government initiatives, including uh, infrastructure, education, um, in, uh, policies to improve the business environment. So we try to exclude those for, by, uh, for the most part. Um, but then we we were somewhat more uh, broad than some of the very narrow ones that uh, exclude, uh, for example. Um, uh, credit subsidies or implicit types of subsidies, right? We had to decide what specific instruments to include because we have to quantify each one. We decided to include R&D spending insofar as it's government supported, whether executed, so funded by the government to pay for business R&D, or basically tax incentives to, to incentivize uh, companies to do R&D. That is arguably horizontal, which is not the kind of thing we're trying to capture. But but the thing with R&D is it's clearly biased towards certain sectors, typically high tech. And so it's sort of vertical and horizontal. It's also very important for some of the economies we were talking about. Uh, we also decided to exclude regional development programs. Th those are so things like in Brazil and, and a lot of developing countries where it's essentially reallocating resources within the country, uh, often it's just kind of a, a, a regional focus as opposed to actually supporting specific industries. Um, one big decision was to exclude agricultural and energy 
uh, industrial policy or subsidies, except insofar as that money is going into firms to, to support related technologies or direct support for related things. So, a lot of a lot of the um, the discussion about state support actually bifurcates discussion on the manufacturing side from the agricultural side. Agricultural subsidies are something almost every country does. It's its own hot thing, but we don't want to we don't want to tackle that here. One thing we should also highlight that we did not include. Uh, due to a lack of data, to our great regret, was government procurement. Government procurement is probably the most important thing that we cannot quantify. And the reason why we couldn't quantify it is that even OECD countries are fairly opaque about giving you data on what their total procurement is. And even if you know what the total procurement is, it's hard to actually estimate what the sort of implicit subsidy is from that. So unfortunately, we were not able to include that. Right. And how did you track all this data down? Well... So I think something that's that's very important to say as 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 we learned in a research is that you know our overall objective with this project was to just quantify industrial policy spending across major economies focused on China but not just on China. Turned out that as far as we could tell almost no one has done this at least not for the countries we're talking about. So uh, the, the existing research on industrial policy, which is robust, but it tends to focus on the effectiveness of industrial policy or its distortionary impacts, and it's generally country-specific. There just aren't that many cross-country uh, quantitative assessments of industrial policy. So our initial hope was, well, you know, others will basically have done versions of this, and we can sort of duplicate that. And it turned out that that was not really the case. Uh, so our, our method was looking at all the available literature. It was basically broken into two Two parts. First was figuring out what the insurance we would use for China would be, because China is a bit sui generis. Um, there's there's serious data problems. They're just generally less transparent. And then finding comparable, or at least loosely comparable, instruments across the other economies in our sample. So our data uh, sets would basically be things like WTO filings where countries are supposed to disclose their subsidies. Some do this more than others. China doesn't do it at all. They say what their programs are, but they don't give any actual quantities or values, but the other countries in our sample do. Or looking at things like uh, fiscal budgets, government budgets, uh, the, the annual reports from policy banks or state-affiliated banks, uh, state-affiliated investment funds, um, and just putting it all together. And also, to the extent we could, using, say, OECD data on R&D and, and anything that was sort of already done. Um, but it, 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 it involved a lot of sources. And if you really want to know, at the back of our paper, there's a very lengthy appendix with all the details on that. Yeah, and just to add to that, um, I think what we found was that the European Union was perhaps the most re robust, uh, where the most robust research existed. Uh, so obviously the Commission tracks uh, subsidies, but they were they are interested in uh, something slightly different, which is more uh, focused on in European integration, right? So we were interested in these vertical. Um, subsidies that weren't necessarily the same categories that the, the commission looks at. Uh, we also found that there was a excellent uh, report uh, put out by a French think tank. They also were looking at slightly different things, right? So we did use for France, we were able to use that, but for most other countries, there seemed to be really a lack of even um, I, w I think one thing that emerges is that I think a lot of governments, even in developed uh, economies, are not entirely aware of how much the state is spending to support industry. Um, and I think that's actually quite important. 
I think it's important to also note that methodologically, uh, we we held two private roundtables with a large group of experts, which most of whom are acknowledged in the actual acknowledgments. And the point of that was to vet our methodology, both for China and for the cross-country comparisons. And we did take their feedback, including from Chinese interlocutors. And so our objective was to be as transparent and fair in the methodology as possible. And as a result, we actually did drop some things from the stack that we thought would be unfair or too difficult to quantify. Um, but, but in general, I mean, the, the instruments we came up with were ones that people generally agreed were, were fair. So, so after all that strain and labor, um, what is the figure that you came to for, for China's spending on industrial policy? Um, so we found that in, ter- as in, you know, in terms of as a share of GDP, China in 2019 spent 1.73% of GDP in industrial policy spending. That's actually relatively consistent over time. We tried to calculate this for 2017, 2018, and 2019 for China. Um, it's relatively steady. Um, and it may not sound like a huge number, but then if you um, compare it to other economies, it's it's actually more than twice as high uh, than any other economy. So just uh, to give you an example, the, the second highest uh, spender as a share of GDP was South Korea, which uh, uh, was spending in 2019 0.67%. Uh, uh, so 0.67%, right? And in terms of, of dollar amount, China uh, is also spending an uh, you know, extraordinary uh, number of, um, an extraordinary amount. Um, so in 2019, we calculated that in market exchange rates, uh, China spent $248 billion. Uh, the next uh, highest spender was the United States with, 84 billion dollars um so and then we did it also in um in uh, purchasing parity prices exchange rates and this was similarly um extraordinarily high so one one benchmark we've been using just roughly is that in 2019 uh, CIPRI, which does estimates of defense spending, estimates in, on the high end that China spent $240 billion. That's market exchange rates on defense. So our equivalent number for Chinese industrial policy is close to $250 billion. So in other words, China is on aggregate spending more on industrial policy than it is on defense. Something else to emphasize is that our, our estimates for China in particular should be treated as very conservative. We had to make some assumptions due to gaps in the data. Um, in general, we were actually very cautious with the China numbers. We, we didn't want to be accused of exaggerating. So uh, when we say 1.73% of GDP, that's at least. It's almost certainly higher, even by our own methodology, if we had all data. And if you go to our annex, we actually include all the caveats and the assumptions we made. Um, and actually, in some cases, for some of the non-China economies we looked at, uh, we we actually were uh, we were non-conservative for the for you know for example for France it's it's there's some areas where we some categories where we may be overcounting, uh, but we tried to uh, sort of give the benefit of the doubt to China in that way, and still we came up with these uh, extraordinary numbers. So how has China's spending changed over time then? I know you said it was fairly static, but, but what's the time period you're looking at and, and how has the, the sort of stack of spending changed? 
So for China, for for quantifying the entire stack, we were only doing from 2017 to 2019. And I should say that the reason why we use 2019 for our baseline for the cross-country comparison is one, an issue of data availability, but two, uh, COVID just distorted everything. So there were a lot of things that would show up as state support during relief efforts that we just didn't want to count. Um, for, for China, there are some parts of the stack that we can go back further. For example, looking at the uh, subsidies that are reported by listed firms. And so there, there are some things that we can sort of approximate what that trend would be over time. In general, uh, this is true for China, but certainly true also for other economies. The further back in time you go, the harder it is to quantify. So for some of these economies, say like South Korea, if you're looking at you know peak industrial policy in the 1970s, there is not much data at all. There's, it's not possible, as far as we can tell, to do what we did. So in the case of China, we're just trying to, we had to have at least three years to give a rough baseline. Um, and what it showed, as, as Alari already said, is that the components of the stack don't change much over time. The one variation was in uh, below market land sales, because those actually do vary with the price of land in terms of you know, the value of that implicit subsidy. If you're looking further back in time, this is a little more conjecture. Um, let's say go, going back about 20 years, the structure of, of Chinese uh, industrial policy spending has changed mostly in that it's probably become more formalized. So there, say 20 years ago, there were more in-kind transfers like uh, providing land to companies. It has been a bit more formalized on, on the fiscal side. The, the reported subsidies from listed firms have creeped up over time. Part of that is a function of more firms being listed, but it's also probably a function of there being actual more literal subsidies. Uh, the other thing that, that, that's been a, a big change since about, say, 2014 is that China has shifted to a more um, pseudo-market-oriented approach where they're particularly trying to use government guidance funds, which are essentially state-owned venture capital or private equity funds. Uh, and those are trying to sort of take off some of the pressure from, from the formal uh, fiscal subsidies. And so it's gotten to be more sort of financialized. But throughout all of that time, the one important factor for China, maybe the most important distinguishing factor actually, is that because the state more or less owns the financial sector, they have the ability to throw resources at things in a sort of off-budget way, in, an, in a window guidance way that no other economy in our sample could do. And I think that remains extremely salient. Yeah, and something actually to flag because uh, listeners can't see this, but in the report, we actually have different categories that we measure and we provide um, uh, estimates for. Um, and that's actually going back to your original question on how we did it. We, you know, the first started with uh, sort of a um, a conversation and a um, sort of a mental exercise about identifying which are the most important tools of industrial policy, right? So that included, for example, uh, direct subsidies, but also uh, below market credit or um, uh, state investment funds, right? So Gerard mentioned the, the government guidance funds, et cetera. Um, and so when we identified all these different categories and then we went about trying to find um, ways of quantifying them, uh, which were more or less challenging depending on the economy or the category and what data was available. Uh, but, but that's something that is uh, in the report, so that actually readers can compare how different economies distribute or, or use or leverage these tools differently, uh, which is sort of reflective also of the political economy. And I think it's very striking that in China there are certain tools that are 
um, you know, just like, for example, direct subsidies are just much more prevalent than in other, um, in other economies. Same goes for below market credit, uh, which actually we'll talk more about the, the, the case studies, but that sort of was consistent with what uh, um, sectoral analysis case studies also shows. Okay, so zooming out then and taking a more historical view, how, how does China compare with the other countries in your study over the years? Are there any kind of noticeable trends over time? The, the report has a chapter that compares mostly qualitatively China to the seven of other economies in our sample um, from you know just a historical perspective the key the key finding there is that particularly if you're looking at China compared to its East Asian peers so uh, Japan Taiwan and South Korea in our in our sample uh, China is continuing or ramping up its industrial policy spending at a time when when those other economies were at equivalent levels of development, they were actually pulling back. And so in, in that sense, China is, is defying the trend. Um, China is also defying the trend that just generally historically, if, if, you, if you zoom out and have like a 30-second history of industrial policy, it's basically, it was quite popular after World War II in many countries, Europe, Latin America, Asia, et cetera. And then around the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, there was a sort of neoliberal turn where a lot of countries realized it was wasteful. Uh, a lot of countries ran into budgetary problems, especially in Latin America, uh, and they pulled back. And after that, there was much more of a focus on sort of institutional reforms, soft reform, things like infrastructure, education, um, and moving away from any direct government interventions. And then this century, over the past two decades, there's been a, a sort of gradual reemergence of interest in industrial policy, which has been intensified in recent years largely in response to China, but also because of things like COVID, supply chains, uh, green energy targets, et cetera. Um, but, but the big thing for, for you know, the, the historical point is that China, uh, th- there are many Chinese scholars who will counter any accusation that what China's doing is abnormal or, or unfair by saying, well, look, other countries did this too. The U.S. did this, especially in the 1950s and 60s with, with our own type, like in the you know space race, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so we're, we're no different. We're just at a different phase of development. Uh, our view is that even at comparable levels of development, China actually is an outlier. Okay, so case studies. Um, let us talk case studies. So I know you guys did three case studies that you included in your report. So what was the story of those three case studies, um, and what did they kind of tell you about the broader research? Yes, so the sectoral case studies. For these, we actually relied on existing research. So for aluminum and semiconductors, we relied extensively on OECD studies. While for electric vehicles, uh, I have actually done research on on the sector, and Scott Kennedy, um, uh, who was our co-author, also has done research on this, so we relied on that um, existing corpus. I should note that the the focus and the originality of our report is actually the macro level quantification. So the sec- the case studies really are there to sort of show um, how these compare when using a different methodology, how the findings compare, um, and also highlight what may have not been included in the macro level studies because of data problems or because simply those tools were unquantifiable. So. Getting into the specifics, uh, for the aluminum, the what we found was, or not us, the OECD found that, um, in their study found that below market credit and debt equity swaps were really important for um, uh, Chinese firms specifically. 
uh, with uh, some uh, effects on trade distortions. And of course, I should note in our report, we don't look at effects or trade distortions, et cetera, right? But uh, th this is consistent with what we found, right? Below market credit, we found to be really important. That equity swaps, not quite as significant, but that shows that in certain um, sectors, they might have a more of a role. There's also trade measures to support the downstream segment have also been prevalent in China. And this points to something that we were not able to quantify, but it is another tool, right? So trade can be a tool of industrial policy as well. Um, it's in semiconductor, similar kind of pattern, right? So they, again, the OECD study found that below market credit was really important. We did as well at the macro level. Uh, below market equity is very important in semiconductors in China, right? Government guidance funds have been a very big players. And of course, we, we do see that the, uh, it, they, they are significant in, in Chinese industrial policy spending. Uh, but then there's other um, forms of support for the semiconductor industry um, that have been documented by various sources, including government guidance. So, for example, the political uh, system in China allows, once the government identifies certain industries as uh, strategic, it, it is able to direct investment from various private and public sources to that industry. And that's actually uh, very, very important, um, certainly very important for the semiconductor industry, and also targeted public procurement which is extraordinarily important for electric, has been extraordinarily important for electric vehicles, not so quite so important today, I think. But of course, that's, as uh, Gerard mentioned, to our regret, that's the one t uh, tool that we would have liked to include, have included, but uh, weren't able to due to lack of data. Um, so when it comes to electric vehicles, which I should say, I wrote my dissertation on electric vehicle policy in China, so this is uh, an area that I'm particularly interested in. Um, we, uh, we sort of highlight those um, instruments that, that were important in promoting this industry, which has grown significantly in China, um, and that are, we were not able to, to quantify. So that includes um, public procurement, uh, in support of domestic firms and um, some some other kinds of, of government support. Uh, my colleague, S Scott Kennedy, he actually uh, tried to put a number to the, the, the um, subsidies that were uh, and other forms of support that, that helped expand the industry in China. And he uh, estimates that uh, between 2009 and 2017, 390 billion RMB were spent uh, in support of the industry. Um, so that's, um, that's also quite significant, right? So what we really found is that the micro-level studies validated our macro-level uh, analysis. Um, and actually, I think our, um, our colleagues at the OECD, uh, at least one of the authors, uh, um, Jahan Sauvage, he, uh, who, was, who spoke at our launch event, kindly said that it was reassuring for him to see that our, that our numbers were relatively consistent with the ones that he found in the, in, uh, when, when doing this research at the micro level. Um, so, of course, I think what's interesting is that there has been quite a bit of research at the sort of micro level, at the sectoral level. Um, and what, you know, a future area of research will be to do more of this um, sort of comparison between macro and micro and sort of seeing how they match up and finding ways of uh, bridging the two different methodologies, which are, uh, which is obviously challenging, but actually quite rewarding as well.
Okay, so then from, from all of this, is there a main kind of policy takeaway that you guys have taken from this research? We think it's important in order to have an intelligent conversation about industrial policy to actually put some numbers on it. Uh, apparently, that was quite novel. Um, we think at a minimum, uh, say among the G7 countries, hopefully amongst the OECD in general, there is some potential for greater efforts at, at data transparency, um, hopefully in a sort of non-judgmental way so that you can get countries to comply with it and not feel like they have to hide it. But I think uh, particularly if we're talking about things like, say, friend shoring in the U.S or collaborating on technological projects, we need to know what other countries are doing, right? And, and if we don't, how can, you, how can you collaborate effectively? So our, our general takeaway and, and recommendation is we just need more transparency. We are, we are not optimistic about being able to convince or pressure China to be more transparent. That's just not their MO. Um, but I do think there's prospects for advanced economies being more transparent. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and it is also a podcast companion to a magazine of the same name. If you want to read more stories about the business and economic aspects of the U.S.-China relationship, you can do so at chinabusinessreview.com. And if you want to learn more about the U.S. China Business Council, you can learn more on our website, uschina.org. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please do leave a rating and review as it does help other people to find it. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon.